All right, we will do that again from time to time and uh, practice that and do it together. But right now we're going to study Nehemiah. So take your Bible out and find the book of Nehemiah. I love going through the Bible like this and talking about one book at a time. Sometimes I'm frustrated with Bible studies. I don't know if it's just my personality or my lack of patience, but sometimes I get frustrated with Bible studies that get too in the weeds in breaking down a, a word or a phrase or a one particular verse, and I just kind of think, come on, give me the big picture here. I want to see how this fits with the whole and where we're going and what you're really trying to get at. And so I enjoy doing this. The struggle is that when you go through almost all of the books of the Bible, there's a few books that you can cover thoroughly. But most of the books, you have to make sacrifices in a study like this. And the sacrifice is you can't talk about everything. You can only cover so much and you've got to leave some things out. And Nehemiah is one of those books where you can't cover all of it. And for me, the big dilemma when I come to Nehemiah is to say, my first instinct when I read the book is to say, this is a man of prayer. And you should just read Nehemiah this week. And you should look at how many times he prays in this book. I've never read this anywhere. I've never specifically studied the Bible cover to cover to know that this is true. But I would be willing to bet that there are more prayers or as many prayers prayed by Nehemiah in the Bible than any other person. He is praying all the time. And some of the prayers are long prayers and some of them are one-sentence prayers. But when you think about what does it mean, Paul says to the Thessalonians, to pray without ceasing. Here's your example. It's Nehemiah. This is a guy all day long, no matter what was happening, good, bad, uh, things going his way, things not going his way. He's praying all the time. So my first instinct is to say, let's look at Nehemiah from, from the perspective of prayer. Then when I crack open books and I start reading, almost everyone else says, no, you look at Nehemiah for a, a, an example of leadership. He is a leader, and you learn how to be a leader and what a godly leader looks like. And so I think those are two ways to look at Nehemiah. And um, usually I teach Nehemiah from the perspective of prayer. And this week as I prepared, I thought, why don't you just not do what you think is right and do what all these other people think is the main idea and teach it this way. And so we're going to look at Nehemiah from the perspective of leadership. So this week I did some serious research, serious, in-depth, mega research. And I did not go to the UTPB library. I got on Google do this research. Sat down, pulled it up, and I started Googling. And I was researching uh, so diligently on Google, leaders. And I just wanted to type various phrases into Google and see what Google would tell me, uh, because Google knows a lot of things. So I'm basically saying, Google, tell me who is a great leader. And I kind of phrased it different ways, but I said, I want to know who the greatest leaders of all time are. Um, and so, here we go. We'll just tick through them. Here's the first face they gave me. That is Winston Churchill, okay? Good leader. Everybody, I think, would probably be in agreement that Churchill is a great leader. Second, this is in no particular order. That's an easy one. George Washington, first president of the United States. Of course, he's going to come up when you're searching this in Google from the United States of America. So, George Washington came up a lot. Another name that came up a lot, Honest Abe. Another name, 
okay? Nelson Mandela, president of South Africa, Mr. Reagan. At this point, you're saying, okay, so this is just like a, a who's favorite president, most popular presidents list. We're about to get past the presidents of the United States. That is Gandhi, okay? Leader in India that uh, through nonviolence and through hunger strikes led to uh, ending British colonial rule in India. Made some amazing things happen. A different form of leadership than this guy, right? Interesting to think about the two people that I just showed you come up on the exact same search. Tell me who the greatest leaders are of all time. Gandhi, who would not fight or punch back or be hateful at all, and Hitler. Gandhi, who did not profess to love Jesus, and Hitler, who at least tried to co-opt Jesus for his cause from time to time. So you got Mr. Hitler. Who else do we have? Anybody know who that is? Mao, Chairman Mao, um, dictator of China. He's an important guy. He's got a nice mole on his chin. Right here, who do we got? Julius and Augustus, Caesar. So, greatest leaders of all time. That is Napoleon, great military leader. Not the most flattering pose, but I guess at the time he thought it looked pretty good. So, there's Napoleon. Anybody know who that is? I'm sure you're recognizing. Genghis Khan. You should have known, right? Everybody knows that's what he looks like. So, Genghis Khan, military leader. That is Alexander the Great, conquered the known world um, in the name of Greece. Alexander the Great, a great leader. Anybody? I was shocked. Well, I really wasn't shocked, but that's about the only picture I could find of the prophet Muhammad. So, Muslims do not like to make pictures of him or images of him and so there you go there's Muhammad Mr. Castro Mr. Fidel I was that was one that surprised me Google brought that name up multiple times greatest leaders of all time Castro came up that surprised me so is that the last one there they are so you look at that list of people and you say hmm you got some religious leaders up there. You got some military leaders up there. You got some political leaders up there. Um, anybody up, not up there that you think ought to be up there? Okay, Jesus not up there. Good Sunday school answer. Very nice. Anybody else not up there that you think ought to be up there? What do all those people have in common? There's a lot of things they don't have in common. When they lived, where they lived, what they believed, what they fought for, what they died for. What is one thing they all had in common? They didn't all lead nations. They didn't all lead war. Okay, they led a group of people. Okay, we're talking about leadership. That's still kind of vague. What did they do? What was true about all of them that would bring them up? They made a difference. Okay, we remember them because they had an impact. Moral. 
Okay, they had an impact on people. So here's a, a definition of leadership, easy definition of leadership. That's from John Maxwell. You can Google define leadership and get a million different ideas, and some are better than others, and you may like some of them better than this one. But I think this is pretty good. What is leadership? It's influence over other people. And you look at those people whose face I showed to you, they had influence over others. They could get other people to do what they wanted them to do. They had amazing, amazing influence in their lives. And so that's one way to think about leadership. Here's something I like about that definition. When I say we're going to talk tonight about leadership, a lot of you think, eh, I'm not a leader. Eh, I'm, not the, I'm not the person that would teach a Sunday school class. Uh, I'm not the person who would teach a Wednesday night Bible study. I'm not the person who would run for political office. I've never been in the military. I never owned my own business. Eh, I, I don't know that I would describe myself as a leader, and you sort of check out a little bit. Um, in our Sunday morning series, we're talking about what it means to be a church member. And if you've got the book and you read ahead, one of the chapters is you should be a leading church member. And at first you read that and you say, well, everybody can't be a leader. Somebody's got to follow. Or it's just chaos. It gets down to you and your wife and <laughs> you're the leader. There you go. Or she's the leader, depending on how, how it works out. But when you think about leadership like this, I think you understand a little bit better that you are a leader in some sense of the word. You do have influence over people. You have influence over your kids over your grandkids, over your spouse, over the people in your Sunday school class. That may be positive influence, that may be negative influence, but you have influence over other people. And so as we talk about leadership, I really hope you don't just sort of check out and say, eh, leadership, I'm not really a leader. I hope you understand you do have influence over other people. And so these lessons definitely apply to your life. So let me put up the history of Israel, just some basic stuff here. I just want you to remember where Nehemiah falls in the storyline. Okay, so we're backing up, and you're talking about the conquest of the promised land. Joshua leads that after Moses dies. Period of the Judges, that's the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. Then comes the monarchy, Saul, then David, then Solomon. All of Israel united under one king. Then Solomon's kids get to take over and they split the kingdom. They divide the kingdom up. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. First it's Israel, goes into just full-on rebellion against God. Eventually Judah goes into full-on rebellion against God. Then God does what he's been promising the people that he would do all along if they rebelled against him. He sends them into, into exile, first Israel and then Judah. And then he does exactly what he said he would do. He brings the people back. And he does that not just in like, okay, here we go. This is going to be just like the exodus. We're all coming together at once. It didn't work that way in the return. Instead, they just sort of, honestly, they just kind of trickled back. It wasn't this big, miraculous, part the seas, here they come, plagues of locusts and frogs and lightning and hail. It's just sort of a trickle, three different times, of people coming back from exile back to the promised land. I told you that Ezra and Nehemiah go together uh, as a book. In fact, in the Hebrew canon, the Hebrew scriptures, they're combined into one book. Christian canon divides them into two. Um, same content, 
So nothing to, nothing to worry about there. Ezra, <clears throat> in the book of Ezra, we first read about Zerubbabel in 538, and he leads a trickle of people back, and they build the temple. Okay, First trickle to come back, Zerubbabel. Also in the book of Ezra, we read about Ezra, 458 B.C., and Ezra is sent back to teach the law. The temple has been rebuilt, and uh, he gets sent back to teach the people the truth of God's word. That was his job. Tonight we're looking at the book of Nehemiah, the third one down here. It tells the story of Nehemiah, and it's in the year 444 and he is sent back to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. So that gives you a, an idea of those two books that go together in the storyline. Just remember, when you're reading Nehemiah, that chronologically, this is about the last thing that happens in the Old Testament. Okay, I know there's a lot of books between Nehemiah and Matthew, but things start going out of order at this point. This is really about the very last thing that happens. Nehemiah leads these group. This small trickle of exiles back, the temple's been built, Ezra has taught the law, eh, it had a mixed effect, and now Nehemiah comes back and they build the wall around Jerusalem. So we're going to look at the book and we're going to work from the beginning to the end, and I want you to see eight characteristics of godly leadership. Or if you just can't get over calling yourself a leader, then you just scratch that out and you say eight characteristics of godly influence. Because you do have influence over somebody, so you can think about it that way if you want to. Here's the first one. A godly leader prays. And I already told you, you can't get away from prayer in the book of Nehemiah, so that belongs right at the first. A godly leader is a person who prays. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, down to 11. Nehemiah has heard about these people going back with Zerubbabel and these people going back with Ezra. He, he has not gone back. He's still in exile. Twice they've gone back. He's still there. And he's thinking to himself, I wonder how it's going. I wonder how the temple is. I wonder how they're doing teaching the law. And he asks how it's going. And the word he gets back in verse 3 is, it's not going very well. Everything is still pretty much horrible. And so, look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. To hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That happened. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though, you, though your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them in to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. 
and give success to your servant today. He's talking about himself. Give me success and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. This man is the king. And the next verse says, I, Nehemiah, was the cupbearer to the king. If you want to learn how to pray, that's a good place to start. Just pray like Nehemiah prayed. And you look through there. He prayed in combination with fasting. He did it for days. This was not just two minutes he spent praying about this problem. He's praying and he's fasting. This is going on for days. Look what he does in verse 5. He doesn't just jump in and say, everything's terrible. I need to go back and fix it. Please help me go back. He doesn't just jump in and start asking for stuff. That's not how people prayed in the Bible when they prayed correctly. It's not how people pray today when they pray correctly. He says, God, you're the God of heaven. You're the great and awesome God. You keep covenant and steadfast love with those who keep you and keep your commandments. He confesses sin. And there's a lot of sin to confess. There's a lot of wicked kings and people who did a lot of bad things that got them sent into exile where he was praying this prayer. But he doesn't just say, I live in the United States and we are wicked, wicked, wicked. There are some wicked people in this country. God, I am so sorry our country is so wicked. He says, we're wicked. And then he says, I'm wicked. Me and my family are wicked. It's not just a problem out there, and I am unfortunate enough to be a part of it. I am the problem. He confesses his sins to God. He doesn't make excuse for it. He talks about God's promises. When you pray, you ought to do that. He's not just pulling stuff out of thin air, asking God to do this or do that, but he's saying, God, I'm thinking about this. I'm meditating on this. I'm muttering on this. This is what you told us. You told us you were going to do this, send us into exile, and then you said you'd bring us back. And God, I'm praying that you would do that. And then way, 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 way down at the bottom, at verse 11, after he's done all that, then he actually asked God the question that he really wanted to ask him all the while. That's not how most people pray. Most people would just say, dear God, I really want to go back to Jerusalem. Please make it work out. I need your help. I don't know what to do. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's not how Nehemiah prayed. He goes through all these different things, and way down at the end, he says, give me success as I go and I talk to the king. So he goes and he talks to the king, which leads us to number two, godly leadership. A godly leader acts. And what I mean there is they're not paralyzed by fear To just sit back and wait for a miracle. Sometimes we do that. We pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. We're asking God to do something. And then we just wait. Like we're just waiting for God to do it for us. We're just waiting for this awesome sign in the heavens to make it all clear. Nehemiah didn't get any of that. He fasted and he wept and he prayed for day and days and days and days. And then he said, okay, now I'm going in. I'm going to go ask the king to let me do something that could cost me my job, could cost me my career, could cost me my life. If the king thinks I don't appreciate him and the king thinks I'm not loyal to him and I want to be a traitor, he could just chop my head off immediately. But I've prayed that you would give me success and now I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to take action. And so he does that. And uh, he goes in and he talks to the king. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him. So can I just say, Nehemiah wasn't stupid. He didn't go to the king right when he rolled out of bed in the morning. He didn't go to the king right after he had a quadruple bogey on the part four on the back nine. He says, let the guy sit down, let him have something to drink, and then he goes and he talks to him. And he says, uh, I took up the wine, I gave it to the king, I had not been sad in his presence. But the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, this is just kind of panic. Let the king live forever. It's kind of like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's build some tents. Let's just hang out for a while. You just pop off and you say, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what are you requesting? So the king's a pretty perceptive guy. He didn't ask for anything. But he said, what do you really want here, Nehemiah? What are you driving at? So, this is interesting. What did he do? I prayed. One more time. Before I give you the actual question and drop the bomb on you, let me just pray one more time. I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long are you going to be gone? When are you going to come back? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, give me letters to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the, king, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and the walls of the city and the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. Why did the king grant him what he asked? For the good hand of my God was upon me. I prayed about it. Took a big breath and I went in, scared as all get out. Then I prayed one more time and then I popped the question on him. I want to go back. I want to leave this great job and I want to go back and build a wall. Please let me go back. Give me your blessing. The hand of God was on him and he sends him back. So godly leader prays. Godly leader acts. Number three. A godly leader faces opposition. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they're building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now that's not the greatest trash talk ever, but it's trash talk. And those guys are saying, your wall is really pitiful. This is what Jerry Darby would say to me if I tried to build a wall. He'd look at me and say, that's not how you build anything. If a fox gets on top of it, the whole thing's going to fall down. Let me show you what to do. But these guys aren't as nice as Jerry Darby, and so instead of saying, let us help you, they say, you're a bunch of idiots. You can't do it. You're never going to get it done. You're not even doing it right. You've never even built a wall. You have no clue what you're doing. It's lousy. It's pitiful. It's embarrassing. You ought to just quit. 
So they're facing this opposition. In your sphere of leadership, you will face opposition. Doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Doesn't mean God's angry with you. That's just part of life. You try to parent or you try to grandparent. You try to have influence over your kids or your grandkids. There's going to be opposition to that. You try to be a godly leader in your community, uh, at your place of work, at your business. There's going to be opposition to that. You try to be a godly leader in your church, in mentoring kids and working with kids on Wednesday night or Sunday morning or teaching a Sunday school class, whatever you may do to exercise influence over people in a godly way, just know you're going to face opposition. You don't just curl up in a ball and say, oh, Tobias so mean, oh, Sanballat made fun of our wall. You just pull your pants up and get on with it. You just deal with it. That's what Nehemiah had to do. You're going to face opposition. Number four, a godly leader cares, and I should have put more on there. What, I'm, what I mean to say is he cares about the people, or she cares about the people that they're trying to lead. Okay, This sets biblical leadership apart from a lot of the guys we saw up on the screen earlier. right? A lot of the military leaders or a lot of the political leaders that I put up on that screen, they cared about one thing and one thing only, and that's themselves and their own power. That's it. That's what they were concerned about. And they used people to get what they wanted. Biblical leadership is completely different. And you see it when Jesus talks to his disciples in the New Testament and says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's how the world exercises leadership. That's how the world exercises authority. It's not going to be that way with you. The least will be the greatest. The greatest among you needs to be a servant. And you see the same thing in Nehemiah. Godly leader cares. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have fields, have our fields and our vineyards. So you understand what these guys are saying to Nehemiah. They're saying, the economy stinks right now, and we're getting taken advantage of by some of our own kinsmen. Now, just think back. What did Nehemiah go back to do? To fix the economy? Build a wall. It would have been really easy for Nehemiah to say, look, <laughs> times are tough, I know. I feel bad for you. I just, I'm busy. God sent me to build a wall. He didn't send me to set up a relief agency. He didn't send me to care for people who are uh, having trouble paying their electric bill. I'm here to build a wall. And I'm sorry, but I need to focus on that. Instead, this is what he does. Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And I had a great, held a great assembly against them. And I said, 
We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold into the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and they could not find a word to say. So basically he says, time out on the wall, let's take care of this. I care about you people. I'm not just here to get a task done, but I care about the people that I'm trying to have influence over. So, godly leader cares. Number five, a godly leader turns people to Scripture, or he turns people to the Bible. This is a big one in Nehemiah, and it's a big one in Ezra too. And you remember those two books kind of go together. Look at Nehemiah 8. If anybody ever complains about the length of a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study or a sermon, you just tell them, hey, look at Nehemiah 8 and don't complain. Because this is how Nehemiah did it in chapter 8. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So they're in the city. And they told Ezra the scribe, there's our old buddy Ezra. You remember Ezra 7.10? Ezra the scribe set his heart to study the law of God and to teach it, or for, to study it and to do it and to teach his statutes in Israel. I'm going to study, I'm going to do, I'm going to teach. Same Ezra. Uh, they took Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning, seven or eight in the morning, until midday, noon. We're going to get together. I'm going to stand up here in front of you. You're going to stand out there in front of me. And I'm just going to read from the book of Moses. This is in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him was a bunch of guys. Skip down to verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, literally standing taller on this platform, as he opened it and all the people stood. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Ezra is saying, you stand here, and I'm going to read the Bible to you. And all the people stand there, and they listen. Brooke and I went to a concert about three years ago. It's our favorite band. We went to this concert, and it was in a not very nice venue. And uh, so we were disappointed by that. We had never been to this place. It was in Oklahoma City, so when we said, let's go see him, we had no idea this place was not very nice. It was not very nice. And we went in, and the worst part about this place is there were no chairs in the whole place. Not one. And so I thought, oh, we're going to have to stand for the whole thing. But that's okay. This is our favorite band. We're excited to see them. We're not old. We can stand up for a little while. This is going to be fun. Let's have a positive attitude. We finally get in, and we get in, and they're sound checking. Okay? Doing all the sound check. And something is not working. And so they sound check. And they sound check, and they sound check, and they check, and they check, and they check. And two hours later, I'm standing in the same place, and I have not heard one song played. And I was really cranky, and that was my favorite band. And when they finally started, I just found myself saying, I'm just too cranky to enjoy this. My knees hurt, my back hurts, my feet hurt. I don't want to be here anymore. 
This is not a nice place. Some of these people are not nice people. I don't want to be here. I've been here way too long. Standing makes you cranky. That's my point. You know that. I don't have to tell you that. Right? Standing. Go to a restaurant. We went to a restaurant the other night with friends and we walked in. At 5 o'clock we walked in. It's going to be an hour wait. Okay. We'll just stand here. And we'll stand. And we'll stand. And we'll stand. And we'll stand. These people are standing there. And they're listening to the scriptures. And uh, they listen. And no one complains. And Ezra just reads the Bible to the people. And that may not be exactly how we do it today. But the point is really obvious. Ezra, as a godly leader, pointed the people to God's word. You have to do the exact same thing. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're trying to exercise leadership over the people you work with, if you're trying to exercise influence over people here at our own church, point people to God's word. Number six, godly leaders confess sin. They confess sin. I'm not going to read this passage in chapter 9 because that's a long one and I'll let you read it we already read chapter 1 where he confessed sin but I just want you to note the connection here okay Nehemiah 8 we just read it what does he do he gets the people and he reads the Bible Nehemiah 8 Nehemiah 9 Ezra and all the people do what they confess sin the order is important If you want people to be broken over their sin, they have to be exposed to God's word. You and I cannot move people to a place of brokenness over their sin. I've tried to do that with friends in my life who are making horrible decisions, sinful decisions. And I've tried to reason with them and I've tried to argue with them and I've tried to make something so obvious to them. And you might as well be talking to a wall. They're not listening. Not every time does God's word bring a breakthrough, but the only way that you're ever going to have a breakthrough is with God's word. And I can think about a friend of mine just making the dumbest decisions, the stupidest decisions, and I just begged with him, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. He's not listening, he's not listening. And one day I send him a text message and I said, read this chapter in the book of Proverbs and tell me how this squares with your life. And he calls me 30 minutes later just weeping. Saying, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. I'm the biggest idiot. I've been telling you that. Really? Because I, I, I don't know. I'm an idiot. It's plain as the nose on my face. I'm an idiot. If you want people to confess sin, expose them to God's word. That's the hope. So godly leader turns people to scripture. Godly leader confesses sin. Number seven. Godly leaders hold people accountable. They hold people accountable. This is in chapter 10. I'm not going to read this one either, but I'm going to let you look at it. Here's the idea. Chapter 8, they read the Bible. They realize when they're hearing Ezra read it, we haven't been doing that stuff. We've been breaking all those laws. Chapter 9, they confess their sin. God, we're idiots. We are so sorry for all the stupid things that we've been doing. Chapter 10, Ezra, or excuse me, Nehemiah says, okay, this is all great. We've read the Bible, you've confessed your sin, now you need to bring repentance full circle and you need to make a commitment, right? You need to uh, make a decision about what you're going to do. 
and you can read that in verse 30 to 39. He, they make a commitment, and they say, we're not going to give our kids in marriage to foreign women anymore. We won't do that. We're, we're going to observe the Sabbath. We're going to tithe off of our money. We're going to bring offerings for the temple. We're going to worship like you want us to worship. We're going to do all these things, and Ezra leads them in this commitment, and he's holding these people accountable to this. Related to number seven, here's number eight. A godly leader doesn't quit. Doesn't quit. And you, you go back and read chapter 9, the confession, and especially chapter 10, the commitment. We won't give our daughters in marriage to pagan people. We will keep the Sabbath. We will give our tithes. We will bring our offerings. We will worship. Nehemiah, we will do all of this stuff. Everybody has a big hug. They just celebrate, they clap, it's exciting, this is good, God's done a great thing. Now, keep in mind, Nehemiah talking to the king, the king says what? How long are you going to be gone? When are you coming back? So at this point, chapter 10, they make the big commitment, Nehemiah says, you know what, the wall is built, we've read the Bible, we've confessed sin, you've made this commitment, i got to go. It's time for me to go home. So Nehemiah goes home. And we have no idea how much time goes by. Maybe a couple of months, maybe a couple of years. Period of time goes by. And look at chapter 13, verse 6, I believe. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. It's because he went home. Went back into exile, basically. In the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked of leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem. And it keeps going on, and basically he finds out, you can read from verse 7 all the way down through here, this chapter 13, he finds out the people didn't keep any of their commitments. The part about giving their, not giving their kids in marriage to pagan peoples, yeah, they, they gave them in marriage. The part about the tithes, we're going to bring the tithes? No, they didn't. The offerings for the temple or the tabernacle, what the temple that they rebuilt, they didn't bring them. Uh, keeping the Sabbath, oh, we forgot about that. Did you mean Saturday? We got confused. We couldn't remember. We didn't do that one either. On and on and on. They haven't done any of it. And if I'm Nehemiah, I'm really tempted at this point to say, okay, we built the wall. The wall is nice. These people are ridiculous. I have a nice job back with the king. I'm out of here. Just give up on the people. He does not give up on the people. Look at chapter 13, verse 23. These are some of the best verses in all the Bible, if you've never read them. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not even speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. You say, well, they're bilingual or they learned a new language. So what? They couldn't read the Bible. They couldn't read the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what he's upset about. They couldn't even read God's Word. They didn't know how to speak it. They didn't know how to read it. Verse 25, instead of just leaving, instead of giving up, I confronted them and, you ready for this? I cursed them. That means what you think it means. Okay? I had a church history professor who said in class multiple times, there's a time for cursing. It's not very often. It's probably not when you think you need to do it. 
But there is a time for cursing. And Nehemiah says, I confronted them and I cursed them and it gets better. I beat them and I pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And he warns them, he reminds them, didn't Solomon do the exact same thing? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? My point is this. You may not like the way that he exercised his influence here, but you've got to give him credit that he didn't quit. He didn't just wash his hands and say, you people are pathetic, I'm done with you. He grabbed them and he cursed them and he beat them and he yanked their hair out and he wrestled them to the ground and he did whatever he could to say, I'm trying to beat some sense into you so that you understand you can't do this. You can't do this. He didn't give up. He didn't quit on the people. So there's Nehemiah. Amazing influence. But if you're honest, even his godly leadership was very short-lived, right? They read the Bible, they confess the sin, they make the commitment, he goes home, they forget about all of it. He comes back, he starts slapping people around, yanking out hair, throwing people up against the wall, cursing people, getting up in their face, shaking them by the shirt collars. They straighten up, okay, 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 here we go. A couple more years go by, we know exactly what happened. They go back and they do all the exact same things. Here's what you are reminded of when you come to the end of Nehemiah. And you see a godly leader but listen, from the world's perspective, you see a failed leader. In the end, what is leadership? It's influence. It's getting people to do what you want them to do. They didn't do what he wanted them to do. They didn't do it. Maybe they did it for a week and then they quit. You say, by the world's definition, your leadership was disastrous. They didn't do what you wanted them to do. Go to the New Testament, chapter 10. What the people needed was a different kind of leader. They did not need Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not the hero of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah is a reminder to you and to me that Nehemiah was not good enough to lead the people. He was not the one they needed. Who they needed was Jesus. So Nehemiah was a godly leader, but God's people needed a different kind of leader. They needed the good shepherd, and they needed what we read about in John chapter 10. We'll just read this. And then we'll be done. Truly, truly, this is John 10, beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, say to you, he who does not enter by the sheep fold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. There's the idea of leadership, right? The sheep follow him. He's the leader. They follow him because they know him. A stranger they don't follow, but they will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, or Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
I'm the good shepherd. Or as we've studied Nehemiah, you could say I'm the good leader. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the difference. Moses couldn't do that. David couldn't do that. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Nehemiah, Ezra, none of them. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he doesn't care for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They'll listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge that I have received from my Father. That's the leader that they needed. The one who would lay down his life for them and bring them into his flock. That when he speaks, they know his voice, and they hear his voice, and they follow him, and they listen. So you come to the end of the book, it's a reminder that they needed Jesus. They did not need Nehemiah. So on that note, we'll pray, and we'll put this book in the books. Father, we are grateful for the example of a man who teaches us how to pray without ceasing. We're grateful for the example of a man who was a godly leader, and we pray that we would be people of prayer, that we would pray without ceasing. Um, we pray that you would help us to be godly leaders and exercise influence where you have allowed us to have it in our families, in our workplace, in our communities, in our church. Father, we are reminded above all else as we look at this book that Nehemiah was not the one who could set everything right in Israel. And we are grateful that we can look back with faith and see Jesus who laid down his life for us so that he could call us and that he could bring us into his flock and that we might follow him. We thank you for your son, for the good shepherd, and we pray in his name. Amen.